Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Just noticed that Pastor Bill left the gift card up here for the chili cook-off, you know, the chili gift card. So I think I may as well just go ahead and take it now. (laughs) (laughs) Wishful thinking. You know, I don't remember how many years we've been doing this cook-off, but uh, I do remember that I won the first time, and I haven't even placed since. So, so I don't have very high expectations for today. <laughs> oh, let's let's stand for the reading of the word and for uh, for prayer. This is John 11 and 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning so grateful for the salvation that you have provided for us. A sure salvation that we can, we can know is real, that we can know that... Uh, You have taken care of everything and can live our lives in in that respect, Lord. Just thank you that we can gather together and hear your word, that we can uh, apply it to our lives and and become uh, better servants for you. Equip us, Lord, to go out from here and to uh, spread your word, to uh, show the love of God to a lost and dying world. Your name to be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, The last time I was up here, last month, uh, we talked about the cross, which is unquestionably the focal point of history. Without the cross, there could be no resurrection. Without the cross, there could be no forgiveness of sins. And without the cross, there could be no reconciliation to God. Because from God's judgment in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell, the devil has tried everything in his power to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Because he knew that if he could keep Jesus from going to the cross, he could stop God's plan for redemption for mankind. But he knew that if Jesus died on that cross, the resurrection was inevitable. And after that, there was no way that he could defeat him. 
So to follow up our, our study on the cross from last time, I want to talk this morning uh, for a little bit, and I will be relatively brief this morning, I hope, uh, about the resurrection. Now, there are so many directions I could go with this topic. I mean, the Bible is just full of the resurrection of Jesus and the benefits of the resurrection. Do you know, the resurrection of Jesus proves beyond a shadow of doubt the validity of the cross. Paul says in Romans uh, 1 that he, that is Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now the resurrection of Jesus is one, or not one of, but the world's best documented event from ancient history. Now, if this was a normal event, there would be no question from any historian as to its authenticity, for nothing in ancient history comes even close to the amount of evidence. Dr. Sam Lamberson of Knox Theological Seminary says, There are so many pieces of evidence for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that if we reject the truth of the resurrection, I believe, then we must become total historical agnostics and reject virtually everything that we know from ancient history because there is no ancient historical event that is more certainly testified to both the number of witnesses and by the evidence than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, the resurrection was not an ordinary event. And as Josh McDowell says in his uh, book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, it's not unreasonable to demand extraordinary proof for the validity of an extraordinary event. And the Word of God does just that. You know, many historical events from the Roman days are attested to by manuscripts that date no closer than 400 years from the time of the event. And they are accepted without question by historians. The resurrection of Jesus is attested to by manuscript evidence less than 100 years from the actual event and are questioned Actually, you know, there is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is that Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. That took place in 1815, just a little over 200 years ago. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened about 2,000 years ago, and yet there is far more historical evidence for his resurrection. You know, over the centuries, doubters, skeptics, critics, non-believers, and those who thought they were smarter than God have tried to disprove the resurrection by explaining it away. And personally, if I were a non-believer, I would be right embarrassed to have my name associated with even the best of these theories. The swoon theory, 
the hallucination theory, the fraud theory, the stolen body theory, and so on. I'm not even going to take time today to explain these theories. If you have never heard them, I think most of you probably have, but if you've never heard them and would be interested in finding out more, just see me after service and I'll be glad to explain them to you. But what I would like to do today is talk a little bit about the main proofs of the resurrection. And I have eight different things. There are a lot more, but eight main things that I think prove the validity, the historical accuracy, and everything the Bible says concerning the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, the eyewitness accounts. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, and he was quoting Deuteronomy uh, 17 and 19, By the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. It only took two witnesses to establish a fact uh, in a court of law. Well, how about 500 or more? Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church around 55 A.D., uh, says that Jesus, after his resurrection, was seen by Peter and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, you can go ask them. These guys are still around, at least the bigger part of them. Yeah, did this actually happen? Did you see him? Go check for yourself. You don't have to ask one of them. You can ask a whole bunch of them because there were over 500. Because this was only less than 30 years after the actual resurrection. So plenty of them were still around. And many not only saw him, but they touched him to know that he was not just a figment of their imagination. Secondly, as soon as the resurrection occurred, or shortly after the resurrection occurred, the fact was preached in Jerusalem, the scene of the crime, if you will. It wasn't off in some distant country or so long ago after the fact that nobody could produce irrefutable proof that it didn't happen. Hey, Peter's first sermon and the first public proclamation of Jesus' resurrection occurred on the day of Pentecost approximately seven weeks after the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection occurred. Thirdly, Jesus predicted a physical resurrection not a spiritual resurrection. In the second chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, destroy these temple, this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You know, how easy it would have been 
for Jesus to pull the wool over the eyes of his followers by saying, you know, this is going to be a spiritual resurrection. Eastern mystics have done this, you know, for thousands of years. And nobody can prove it. Or they could be like the Jehovah's Witnesses and say, well, Jesus has come back, but he came back spiritually. Actually, he's supposed to have come back in 1872. Or was it 1914? Or was it 1922? They're not really sure. You know, they can't even make their mind up about this. But when somebody comes back bodily, and you can see him, you can talk to him, you can be like Thomas and said, you know, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. You know, he did it. Well, actually the Bible doesn't say he actually put his hand into his side. He said, unless I can. But I think when he saw Jesus, he wasn't even interested in that anymore. He just you know, said, my Lord and my God. So his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. It was a glorified body that could pass through walls evidently and show up here and show up there but it was still a body it was still his body it was the body that he died in and the body that was resurrected it was sown in weakness but raised in glory never to die again number four no evidence was produced by his opponents the Jewish leaders knew of the resurrection on the day that it happened. The Roman soldiers came to them and said, hey, you know, we got bad news. The body's gone. The stones rolled away. You know, and, you know, what can we do? You know, and it's funny to me that the high priest, all these leaders did not say, oh, let's show us, go, let's go see. They didn't get up, they didn't even go to look. They didn't even, even go check it out because they knew what had happened. It's always been to me one of the greatest mysteries that these guys knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what happened but still would not accept it. They knew that the Roman soldiers had not gone to sleep. Roman soldiers did not do that because they would forfeit their life in doing so. But perchance they had gone to sleep, they also knew that the disciples weren't going to come in there and steal the body away in front of a Roman guard. These guys who who scattered when Jesus was arrested. These guys who were afraid to even be associated with Jesus when the, the temple guard took him. And these were the temple guards. These weren't the Roman guards that took him. These were the temple guards. They certainly wasn't going to face the Roman guards. 
They, they knew that they were a bunch of cowards. They knew the fact of the empty tomb. They knew that Jesus said he was going to rise again in three days. But they refused to accept it. Now, these Roman soldiers probably didn't know what was going on. I'm, I'm sure that they were just as baffled as they could probably be. And I remember sitting in church one, one time. This has been years and years ago. Just contemplating this matter. How could these guys who were there at the scene uh, who had better evidence than anybody else ever in the world will have that the resurrection occurred how could they be bought off? How could they accept money to go out and, and tell something that wasn't true? And the Spirit spoke to me just as plain as can be. He said, look at this scripture again. You're missing a word. So I turned in my Bible, and it says that the Jews gave them large money. Now, the the... King James says large money. The New King James says large sum of money. Um, the, the word sum is not in Greek, just large money. In other words, they gave them a whole bunch. I don't know how much, but they made rich men out of these Roman soldiers. And I'm sure they were glad to take it. They had their the point where they could be bought, and the Jews found it. And I think that attests to the depravity of man. You know, that money is more important to some than the miraculous uh, event. <clears throat> but the Roman soldiers don't baffle me as much as the Jewish leaders who could knowingly, knowing exactly what had happened, and still refuse to believe it. The fifth thing is the first people on the scene were women. Now to us, that's not a big deal. In those days, that was a big deal. Nobody writing a story, making up a story, fabricating something, beginning a, a a legend, if you will, would place women as the primary witnesses, the first witnesses. You know, somebody said one time that the whole story of the gospel does not have the feel or the ring of, of a legend. And it doesn't. There's too many things that, that nobody making up a story like this would do. And having witnesses, your first witnesses to be women, is one of them. Because in those days, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. A woman's testimony was considered unreliable because women were considered to be too emotional, <laughs> too unstable, if you will. But you know, Jesus didn't see things that way. Robbie Zacharias, who is probably my favorite apologist. Uh, you know, <clears throat> said, uh, 
why on earth would they have put the first evidence in the mouths of women in a society where their world would not have counted their word would not have counted in court so if anyone was scheming this thing up that's the last place they would have gone to find authority it's just like my lord to take those whom the world is marginalizing and send send her with the message to Peter and the other disciples that he is risen indeed. And Ravi goes on to say that those boys weren't quite ready for this type of primary resource. <laughs> they weren't even sure that they should believe it. But, you know, number six, the transformation of the apostles from cowards to bold disciples. Before Jesus went to the cross, he predicted that everyone would abandon him. Even Peter, the foot-in-the-mouth apostle, who was so sure of himself that he said, even if everybody else leaves you, I won't. I certainly won't. And he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This brave apostle cowered before a servant girl on the night of Jesus' arrest. Now, contrast him with Peter in the second chapter of Acts who stood up publicly in the street before thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem, the city where he could have most easily been arrested and tried and crucified himself and proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus telling these Jews that you are the ones who crucified him but now he has risen so and it wasn't Peter only but all the apostles boldly and unashamedly proclaimed the gospel not only in the streets of Jerusalem but in the temple itself after his resurrection and you know that leads to number seven and that is that these miraculous changes in the lives of these men didn't stop with the apostles it's gone on down through the ages and it's still going on today. You know, we read about great men like John Newton who wrote the wonderful hymn Amazing Grace who was a vile man who, who was a slave trader who had no relationship or interest in God at all changed totally and drastically. Or Mel Trotter who was a drunk, one time stole the shoes off of his dead baby daughter's feet to take them, sell them, to buy liquor with. And whom J. Vernon McGee said was one of the greatest evangelists of his generation because the Lord changed him. You know, we can read of all these great men and all these wonderful things that have happened down through the years. But you know, there are just as many stories in this room right here. I know 
some of your testimonies, some of your stories. I know what some of you were before the Lord changed you. So this evidence of his resurrection and the changing power, the life-giving power, the resurrection power that is still present today within his church is in full operation, is evident in the changed lives that we find in this room right here. Because some of you certainly are not what you were. You have been changed. You have been redeemed. And of course, there's the empty tomb. All the facts that I have mentioned above point to this one fact. It's a historical fact. And on the fact of the empty tomb, Christianity finds its basis its validity and its power to change lives but you know unfortunately facts don't equal belief the Jewish leaders had all the facts but they refused to accept them the facts were inconvenient and contradictory to what they wanted to believe we have those same facts today and people believe them or they don't believe them but the facts remain the same. Josh McDowell said that no one can reject Jesus Christ on intellectual grounds. It has to be because belief in him conflicts with their chosen lifestyle. He gives us the opportunity to believe. We have to listen to his voice. We have to hear him call and we have to respond. Because facts don't equal belief. As Alistair Begg said, if people would accept facts as facts, nobody would smoke. (coughs) Because we know the facts of smoking, you know, what it does to you. But people choose not to accept them. People choose not to accept the fact of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his victory over death and gives us the assurance that all of his claims are true. His resurrection guarantees the believer's present forgiveness and justification and assures us that we too can one day take part in a bodily resurrection. Paul said in Romans, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with us. And his resurrection gives us the assurance that he will come again, just as he said. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13 beginning at 13 I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we serve a real, living Savior who is as alive today as anyone because you not only are alive, you are the life. You are the giver of life. You not only rose from the dead, you are the resurrection from the dead. And it's in you that we have life. It is in you that we have hope of the resurrection. Let us not lose sight of this, Lord. Let us not get so caught up in the world uh, and in the affairs of this life that we don't take time to contemplate these things, to remember that you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name.